Chapter fifty one, part three of a popular history of France from the earliest times, volume six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A popular history of France from the earliest times, volume six by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter fifty one, Louis the fifteenth, the regency in Cardinal Dubois, seventeen fifteen to seventeen twenty three, part three. At the moment when the signature was being put to the treaty of the Triple Alliance, the sovereign of most distinction in Europe, owing to the eccentric renown belonging to his personal merit, the Tsar Peter the Great had just made flattering advances to France. He had some time before wished to take a trip to Paris, but Louis the Fourteenth was old, melancholy, and vanquished, and had declined the Tsar's visit. The regent could not do the same thing, when, being at the Hague in 1717, Peter I repeated the expression of his desire. Marshal Cosset was sent to meet him, and the honours due to the king himself were everywhere paid to him on the road. A singular mixture of military and barbaric roughness with the natural grandeur of a conqueror and creator of an empire, the Tsar mightily excited the curiosity of the Parisians. Quote, sometimes feeling bored by the confluence of spectators says duclos but never disconcerted he would dismiss them with a word a gesture or would go away without ceremony to stroll whither his fancy impelled him he was a mighty tall man very well made rather lean face rather round in shape a high forehead fine eyebrows complexion reddish and brown fine black eyes large lively piercing well opened, a glance majestic and gracious when he cared for it, otherwise stern and fierce, with a tick that did not recur often, but that affected his eyes and his whole countenance, and struck terror. It lasted an instant, with a glance wild and terrible, and immediately passed away. His whole air indicated his intellect, his reflection, his grandeur, and did not lack a certain grace in all his visits he combined a majesty the loftiest the proudest the most delicate the most sustained and at the same time the least embarrassing when he had once established it with a politeness which savoured of it always and in all cases master-like everywhere but with degrees according to persons he had a sort of familiarity which came of frankness but he was not exempt from a strong impress of that barbarism of his country which rendered all his ways prompt and sudden, and his wishes uncertain, without bearing to be contradicted in any." Eating and drinking freely, getting drunk sometimes, rushing about the streets in hired coach or cab, or the carriage of people who came to see him, of which he took possession unceremoniously, he testified towards the regent a familiar good grace mingled with a certain superiority. At the play, to which they went together, the Tsar asked for beer. The regent rose, took the goblet which was brought, and handed it to Peter, who drank, and without moving, put the glass back on the tray which the regent held all the while, with a slight inclination of the head, which, however, surprised the public. At his first interview with the little king, he took up the child in his arms, and kissed him over and over again, quote, with an air of tenderness and politeness which was full of nature, and nevertheless intermixed with a something of grandeur, equality of rank, and, slightly, superiority of age, for all that was distinctly perceptible. 
we know how he went to see madame de maintenon one of his first visits was to the church of the sorbonne when he caught sight of richelieu's monument he ran up to it embraced the statue and quote ah oh, great man said he if thou wert still alive i would give thee one half of my kingdom to teach me to govern the other the tsar was foreseeing everything studying everything everything interested him save the court and its frivolities he did not go to visit the princesses of the blood and confined himself to saluting them coldly whilst passing along a terrace but he was present at a sitting of the parliament and of the academies he examined the organization of all the public establishments he visited the shops of the celebrated workmen he handled the coining die whilst there was being struck in his honour a medal bearing a fame with these words vires acquiret eundo or twill gather strength as it goes he received a visit from the doctors of the sorbonne who brought him a memorial touching the reunion of the greek and latin churches quote, i am a mere soldier said he but i will gladly have an examination made of the memorial you present to me amidst all his chatting studying and information hunting peter the great did not forget the political object of his trip he wanted to detach france from sweden her heretofore faithful ally still receiving a subsidy which the tsar would fain have appropriated to himself together with his own alliance he promised that of poland and of prussia quote, france has nothing to fear from the emperor he said as for king george whom he detested quote, if any rupture should take place between him and the regent russia would suffice to fill towards france the place of england as well as of sweden thanks to the ability of dubois the regent felt himself indebted to england he gave a cool reception to the overtures of the tsar who proposed a treaty of alliance and commerce prussia had already concluded secretly with france poland was distracted by intestine troubles matters were confined to the establishment of amicable relations france thenceforth maintained an ambassador in russia and the tsar accepted the regent's mediation between sweden and himself quote, france will be ruined by luxury and daintiness said peter the great at his departure more impressed with the danger run by the nation from a court which was elegant even to effeminacy than by the irregularity of the morals to which elsewhere he was personally accustomed dubois however went on negotiating although he had displayed no sort of alacrity towards the tsar he was struggling everywhere throughout europe against the influence of a broader bolder more powerful mind than his own less adroit perhaps in intrigue but equally destitute of scruples as to the employment of means alberoni had restored the finances and reformed the administration of spain he was preparing an army and a fleet meditating he said to bring peace to the world and beginning that great enterprise by manoeuvres which tended to nothing less than setting fire to the four corners of europe in the name of an enfeebled and heavy-going king and of a queen ambitious adroit and unpopular quote, both of whom he had put under lock and key keeping the key in his pocket says saint simon he dreamed of reviving the ascendancy of spain and italy of overthrowing the protestant king of england whilst restoring the stuarts to the throne and of raising himself to the highest dignities in church and state he had already obtained from pope clement the eleventh the cardinal's hat disguising under pretext of war against the turks 
the preparations he was making against Italy. He had formed an alliance between Charles Twelfth and the Tsar, intending to sustain, by their united forces, the attempts of the Jacobites in England. His first enterprise at sea made him master of Sardinia within a few days. The Spanish troops landed in Sicily. The emperor and Victor Amadeo were in commotion. The pope, overwhelmed with reproaches by those princes, wept, after his fashion, saying that he had damned himself by raising Alberoni to the Roman purple. Dubois profited by the disquietude excited in Europe by the bellicose attitude of the Spanish minister to finally draw the emperor into the alliance between France and England. He was to renounce his pretensions to Spain and the Indies, and give up Sardinia to Savoy, which was to surrender Sicily to him. The succession to the duchies of Parma and Tuscany was to be secured to the children of the Queen of Spain. Quote, Every difficulty would be removed if there were an appearance of more equality, wrote the regent to Dubois on the 24th of January, 1718. Quote, I am quite aware that my personal interest does not suffer from this inequality, and that it is a species of touchstone for discovering my friends as well at home as abroad. But I am a regent of France, and I ought to so behave myself that none may be able to reproach me with having thought of nothing but myself. I also owe some consideration to the Spaniards, whom I should completely disgust by making the emperor an unequal arrangement, about which their glory and the honour of their monarchy would render them very sensitive. I should thereby drive them to union with Alberoni, whereas, if a war were necessary to carry our point, we ought to be able to say what Count Gramont said to the king, at the time when we served your majesty against Cardinal Mazarin, then the Spaniards themselves would help us. In the result, France and England left Holland and Savoy free to accede to the treaty. But if Spain refused to do so voluntarily within a specified time, the Allies engaged to force her thereto by arms. The Hollanders hesitated. The Spanish ambassador at The Hague had a medal struck representing the Quadruple Alliance as a coach on the point of falling, because it rested on only three wheels. Certain advantages secured to their commerce at last decided the States-General. Victor Amadeo regretfully acceded to the treaty which robbed him of Sicily. He was promised one of the regent's daughters for his son. Alberoni refused persistently to accede to the great coalition brought about by Dubois. Lord Stanhope proposed to go over to Spain in order to bring him round. Quote, if my lord comes as a lawgiver, said the cardinal, he may spare himself the journey. If he comes as a mediator, I will receive him. But in any case I warn him that, at the first attack upon our vessels by an English squadron, Spain has not an inch of ground on which I would answer for his person. Lord Stanhope, nevertheless, set out for Spain, and had the good fortune to leave it in time, though without any diplomatic success. Admiral Byng, at the head of the English fleet, had destroyed the Spanish squadron before Messina. The troops which occupied Palermo found themselves blockaded, without hope of relief, and the nascent navy of Spain was strangled at the berth. Alberoni, in his fury, had the persons and goods seized of English residents settled in Spain, drove out the consuls, and orders were given at Madrid that no tongue should wag about the affairs of Sicily. The hope of a sudden surprise in England, on behalf of the Jacobites, had been destroyed by the death of the King of Sweden, Charles the Twelfth, 
killed on the twelfth of december seventeen eighteen at freirichhalt in norway the flotilla equipped by alberoni for chevalier st georges had been dispersed and beaten by the elements the pretender henceforth was considered to cost spain too dear he had just been sent away from her territory at the moment when the conspiracy of salamar failed in france in spite of the feverish activity of his mind and the frequently chimerical extent of his machinations alberoni remained isolated in europe without ally and without support the treaty of the quadruple alliance had at last come to be definitively signed marshal duxelles head of the council of foreign affairs an enemy to dubois and displeased at not having been invited to take part in the negotiations at first refused his signature memoir de saint simon page three sixty five at the first word the regent spoke to him he received nothing but bows and the marshal went home to sulk caresses excuses reasons it was all of no use uxelles declared to the marquis of effiat who had been dispatched to him that he would have his hand cut off rather than sign the duke of orleans grew impatient and took a resolution very foreign to his usual weakness he sent dantin to marshal duxelles bidding him to make choice of this either to sign or lose his place of which the regent would immediately dispose in favour of somebody who would not be so intractable or farouclé as he o oh, mighty power of orvietan a counterpoison this man so independent this great citizen this courageous minister had no sooner heard the threat and felt that it would be carried into effect than he bowed his head beneath his huge hat which he always had on and signed right off without a word he even read the treaty to the council of regency in a low and trembling voice and when the regent asked his opinion the opinion of the treaty he answered between his teeth with a bow some days later appeared almost at the same time the seventeenth of december seventeen eighteen and the ninth of january seventeen nineteen the manifestos of england and france proclaiming the resolution of making war upon spain whilst philip v by a declaration of december twenty fifth seventeen eighteen pronounced all renunciations illusory and proclaimed his right to the throne of france in case of the death of louis the fifteenth at the same time he made an appeal to an assembly of the states-general against the tyranny of the regent quote, who was making alliances he said with the enemies of the two crowns for once in a way alberoni indulged the feelings of the king his master and in spite of the good will felt by a part of the grandees towards france spain was on the whole with him he no longer felt himself to be threatened as he had been a few months before when the king's illness had made him tremble for his greatness and perhaps for his life he kept the monarch shut up in his room refusing entrance to even the superior officers of the palace memoir de saint simon Quote, the marquis of Villena, major-domo major having presented himself there one afternoon one of the valets inside half opened the door and told him with much embarrassment that he was forbidden to let him in you are insolent sir replied the marquis that cannot be he pushed the door against the valet and went in the marquis though covered with glory being very weak on his legs thus advances with short steps leaning on his little stick 
the queen and the cardinal see him and look at one another the king was too ill to take notice of anything and his curtains were drawn the cardinal seeing the marquis approach went up to him and represented to him that the king wished to be alone and begged him to go away that is not true said the marquis i kept my eye upon you and the king never said a word to you the cardinal insisting took him by the arm to make him go out what with the heat of the moment and what with the push the marquis being feeble fell into an armchair which happened to be by wroth at his fall he raises his stick and brings it down with all his might hammer and tongs about the cardinal's ears calling him a little rascal a little hound who deserved nothing short of the stirrup-leathers when he did at last go out the queen had looked on from her seat at this adventure all through without moving or saying a word and so had the few who were in the room without daring to stir the curious thing is that the cardinal mad as he was but taken completely by surprise at the blows did not defend himself and thought of nothing but getting clear the same evening the marquis was exiled to his estates without ever wanting to return from them until the fall of alberoni alberoni has sometimes been compared to the great cardinals who had governed france to say nothing of the terror with which richelieu inspired the grandees who detested him the prince of conde would not have dared to touch cardinal mazarin with the tip of his cane even when the latter quote-unquote kissed his boots in the courtyard of the castle at havre alberoni had persuaded his master that the french were merely awaiting the signal to rise in his favour the most odious calumnies were everywhere circulating against the regent he did not generally show that he was at all disturbed or offended by them however when the poem of the philippics by lagrange appeared he desired to see it the duke of saint-simon took it to him Quote, read it to me said the regent that i will never do monseigneur said i he then took it and read it quite low standing up in the window of his little winter closet where we were all at once i saw him change countenance and turn towards me tears in his eyes and very near fainting all said he to me this is too bad this horrible thing is too much for me he had lit upon the passage where the scoundrel had represented the duke of orleans purposing to poison the king and all ready to commit his crime i have never seen man so transfixed so deeply moved so overwhelmed by a calumny so enormous and so continuous i had all the pains in the world to bring him round a little king louis the fifteenth who had no love and scarcely any remembrance preserved all his life some affection for the regent and sincere gratitude for the care which the latter had lavished upon him the duke of orleans had never desired the crown for himself and the attentions full of tender respect which he had shown the little king had made upon the child an impression which was never effaced the preparations for war with spain meanwhile continued the prince of conti was nominally at the head of the army marshal berwick was entrusted with the command he accepted it in spite of his old connections with spain the benefits which philip v had heaped upon him and the presence of his eldest son the duke of liria in the spanish ranks there were others who attached more importance to gratitude berwick thought very highly of lieutenant-general count d'asfeld and desired to have him in his army the duke of orleans spoke to him about it Quote, monseigneur answered d'asfeld 
i am a frenchman i owe you everything i have nothing to expect save from you but end quote, taking the fleece in his hand and showing it quote, what would you have me do with this which i hold with the king's permission from the king of spain if i were to serve against spain this being the greatest honour that i could have received end quote. He phrased his repugnance so well, and softened it down by so many expressions of attachment to the Duke of Orléans, that he was excused from serving against Spain, and he contented himself with superintending at Bordeaux the service of the commissariat. The French army, however, crossed the frontier in the month of March, 1719. Quote, the regent may send a French army whenever he pleases, wrote Alberoni on the 21st November, 1718, proclaim publicly that there will not be a shot fired and that the king our master will have provisions ready to receive them he had brought the king the queen and the prince of the asturias into the camp philip v fully expected the desertion of the french army in a mass not a soul budged some refugees made an attempt to tamper with certain officers of their acquaintance their messenger was hanged in the middle of marshal berwick's camp Fontarabia, St. Sebastien, and the castle of Urgel fell before long into the power of the French. Their messenger was hanged in the middle of Marshal Berwick's camp. Fontarabia, St. Sebastien, and the castle of Urgel fell before long into the power of the French. Another division burned, at the port of Los Passages, six vessels which chanced to be on the stocks. An English squadron destroyed those at Sentera and in the port of Vigo, everywhere the depots were committed to the flames this cruel and destructive war against an enemy whose best troops were fighting far away and who was unable to offer more than a feeble resistance gratified the passions and the interests of england rather than of france Quote, it was of course necessary said berwick that the english government should be able to convince the next parliament that nothing had been spared to diminish the navy of spain End quote during this time the english fleet and the emperor's troops were keeping up an attack in sicily upon the spanish troops who made a heroic defence but were without resources or reinforcements and were diminishing consequently every day the marquis of leyden no longer held anything but palermo and the region around etna alberoni had attempted to create a diversion by hurling into the midst of france the brand of civil war Brittany, for a long time past discontented with its governor, the Marquis of Montesquieu, and lately worked upon by the agents of the Duchess of Maine, was ripe for revolt. A few noblemen took up arms and called upon the peasants to enter the forest with them, that is, to take the field. Philip V had promised the assistance of a fleet and had supplied some money. But the peasants did not rise. The Spanish ships were slow to arrive. The enterprise attempted against the Marquis of Montesquieu failed. The conspirators were surrounded in the forest of Noé, near Rennes. A great number were made prisoners and taken away to Nantes, where a special chamber inquired into the case against them. Three noblemen and one priest perished on the scaffold. Insurrection, as well as desertion and political opposition, had been a failure. Philip V was beaten at home as well as in Sicily. The regent succeeded in introducing to the presence of the king of Spain an unknown agent, who managed to persuade the monarch that the cardinal was shirking his responsibility before Europe, asserting that the king and queen had desired the war, 
and that he had confined himself to gratifying their passions the duke of orleans said at the same time quite openly that he made war not against philip v or against spain but against alberoni only lord stanhope declared in the name of england that no peace was possible unless its preliminary were the dismissal of the pernicious minister the fall of alberoni was almost as speedy as that which he had but lately contrived for his enemy the princess des orsins on the fourth of december seventeen nineteen he received orders to quit madrid within eight days and spain under three weeks he did not see the king or queen again and retired first to genoa going by france and then finally to rome he took with him an immense fortune it was discovered after his departure that he had placed amongst the number of his treasures the authentic will of charles the second securing the throne of spain to philip v he was pursued his luggage ransacked and the precious document recovered alberoni had restored order in the internal administration of spain he had cleared away many abuses italian as he was he had resuscitated spanish ambition Quote, i requickened a corpse he used to say his views were extensive and daring but often chimerical he had reduced to a nullity the sovereign whom he governed for so long keeping him shut up far away from the world in a solitude which he was himself almost the only one to interrupt Quote, the queen has the devil in her he used to say if she finds a man of the sword who has some mental resources and is a pretty good general she will make a racket in france and in europe the queen did not find a general and on the seventeenth of february seventeen twenty peace was signed at the hague between spain and the powers in coalition against her to the common satisfaction of france and spain whom so many ties already united the haughty elizabeth farnese looked no longer to anybody but the duke of orleans for the elevation of her children so great success in negotiation however servile had been his bearing had little by little increased the influence of dubois over his master the regent knew and despised him but he submitted to his sway and yielded to his desires sometimes to his fancies dubois had for a long while comprehended that the higher dignities of the church could alone bring him to the grandeur of which he was ambitious yet everything about him seemed to keep them out of his reach his scandalous life his perpetual intrigues the baseness not of his origin but of his character and conduct nevertheless the see of cambrai having become vacant by the death of cardinal de la tremoille dubois conceived the hope of obtaining it Quote, impudent as he was says saint simon great as was the sway he had acquired over his master he found himself very much embarrassed and masked his effrontery by ruse he told the duke of orleans that he had dreamed a funny dream that he was archbishop of cambrai the regent who saw what he was driving at answered him in a tone of contempt thou archbishop of cambrai thou hast no thought of such a thing and the other persisting he bade him think of all the scandal of his life dubois had gone too far to stop on so fine a road and quoted to him precedents of which there were unfortunately only too many the duke of orleans less moved by such bad reasons then put to it how to resist the suit of a man whom he was no longer wont to dare gainsay in anything sought to get out of the affair why who would consecrate thee ah if that's all replied dubois cheerfully the thing is done 
I know well who will consecrate me. But is that all, once more? Well, who? asked the regent. Your premier almoner. There he is, outside. He will ask nothing better. And he embraces the legs of the Duke of Orléans, who remains stuck and caught without having the power to refuse, goes out, draws aside the Bishop of Nantes, tells him that he himself has got Cambrai, begs him to consecrate him, who promises immediately, comes in again, capers, returns thanks, sings praises, expresses wonder, seals the matter more and more surely by reckoning it done, and persuading the regent that it is so, who never dared say no. That is how Dubois made himself Archbishop of Cambrai. He was helped, it is said, by a strange patron, des touches chargé d'affaires in london who was kept well informed by dubois went to see george i requesting him to write to the regent recommending to him the negotiator of the treaties the king burst out laughing quote, how can you ask a protestant prince said he to mix himself up with the making of an archbishop in france the regent will laugh at the idea as i do and will do nothing of the sort quote, pardon me sir rejoined des he will laugh, but he will do it, first out of regard for your majesty, and then because he will think it a good joke. I beseech your majesty to be pleased to sign the letter I have here already written." King George signed, and the adroit Dubois became Archbishop of Cambrai. He even succeeded in being consecrated not only by the Bishop of Nantes, but also by Cardinal Rohan and by Massillon, one of the glories of the French episcopate a timid man and a poor one, in despite of his pious eloquence. The regent, as well as the whole court, was present at the ceremony, to the great scandal of the people attached to religion. Dubois received all the orders on the same day, and when he was joked about it, he brazen-facedly called to mind the precedent of St. Ambrose. Dubois henceforth cast his eyes upon the cardinal's hat, and his negotiations at Rome were as brisk as those of Alberoni had but lately been with the same purpose. Amidst so much defiance of decency and public morality, in the presence of such profound abuse of sacred things, God did not, nevertheless, remain without testimony, and his omnipotent justice had spoken. On the 21st of July, 1719, the Duchess of Berry, eldest daughter of the regent, had died at the Palais Royal, at barely twenty-four years of age. Her health, her beauty, and her wit were not proof against the irregular life she had led. Ere long a more terrible cry arose from one of the chief cities of the kingdom. Quote, the plague, they said, is at Marseille, brought, none knows how, on board a ship from the east. The terrible malady had by this time been brooding for a month in the most populous quarters, without anybody's daring to give it its real name. Quote, the public welfare demands, said Chancellor d'Aguesseau, that the people should be persuaded that the plague is not contagious, and that the ministry should behave as if it were persuaded of the contrary. Meanwhile, emigration was commencing at Marseille. The rich folks had all taken flight. The majority of the public functionaries, unfaithful to their duty, had imitated them when, on the 31st of July, 1720, the Parliament of Aix, scared at the contagion, drew round Marseilles a sanitary line, proclaiming the penalty of death against all who should dare to pass it. The mayor, or Viguier, 
and the four sheriffs were left alone and without resources to confront a populace bewildered by fear suffering and ere long famine then shone forth that grandeur of the human soul which displays itself in the hour of terror as if to testify of the divine image still existing amidst the wreck of us whilst the parliament was flying from threatened x and hurrying affrighted from town to town accompanied or pursued in its route by the commandant of the province all that while the bishop of marseilles monseigneur de belzunce the sheriffs estelle and moustier and a simple officer of health chevalier rose sufficed in the depopulated town for all duties and all acts of devotion the plague showed a preference for attacking robust men young people and women in the flower of their age it disdained the old and the sick there was none to care for the dying none to bury the dead the doctors of marseilles had fled or dared not approach the dying without precautions which redoubled the terror Quote, the doctors ought to be abolished wrote dubois to the archbishop of aix or ordered to show more ability and less cowardice for it is a great calamity some young doctors arriving from montpellier raised the courage of their desponding brethren and the sick no longer perished without help rallying round the bishop the priests assisted by the members of all the religious orders flew from bedside to bedside and from grave to grave without being able to suffice for the duties of their ministry Quote, look at belzunce writes le monti all he possessed he has given all who served him are dead alone in poverty afoot in the morning he penetrates into the most horrible dens of misery and in the evening he is found again in the midst of places bespattered with the dying he quenches their thirst he comforts them as a friend he exhorts them as an apostle and on this field of death he gleans abandoned souls the example of this prelate who seems to be invulnerable animates with courageous emulation not the clergy of lazy and emasculated dignitaries for they fled at the first approach of danger but the parish priests the vicars and the religious orders not one deserts his colours not one puts any bound to his fatigues save with his life thus perished twenty-six recollets and eighteen jesuits out of twenty-six the capucins summoned their brethren from the other provinces and the latter rushed to martyrdom with the alacrity of the ancient christians out of fifty-five the epidemic slew forty-three the conduct of the priests of the oratory was if possible more magnanimous the functions of the sacred ministry were forbidden them by the bishop a fanatical partisan of the bull unigenitus they refused to profit by their disqualification and they devoted themselves to the service of the sick with heroic humility nearly all succumbed and there were still tears in the city for the superior a man of eminent piety End of chapter fifty one part three